Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. By the mid-10th century BC, Hittite successor states are reasonably well attested in Carchemish, under the Suhi dynasty, in Malatya, Kuma, and Masuwari all along the Euphrates, as well as in Hamath along the Orontes. And it's around this time that we can safely start using the term Neo-Hittite. Well, safe subject to the usual boatload of caveats. According to historian Trevor Bryce, the term is typically applied to kingdoms having a certain set of characteristics. They lay in the region of Iron Age Hattie, they use Luwian hieroglyphs for their royal inscriptions, their kings bore Luwian or Hittite names, and elements of their iconography and architecture harkened back to the Hittite New Kingdom. While these kingdoms had Neo-Hittite elites, that said little about their actual populations. Bryce notes that they were almost certainly a mix of many ethnic elements, including native Syrians, Luwians, and Aramaeans. We also don't know if the people or their kings actually even spoke Luwian, or if Luwian hieroglyphs were just being used because of their long association with Hittite royal power. To add another layer of complexity, the distinction between Neo-Hittite and Aramean kingdoms is often problematic. As we proceed, we'll begin to encounter Neo-Hittite dynasties coming to power in Aramean kingdoms, Aramean dynasties coming to power in Neo-Hittite kingdoms, and sometimes just a seesaw back and forth. To complicate things further, which is apparently my goal today, we still have a poor understanding of Aramean culture, the culture that the Arameans brought with them across the Euphrates. According to Bryce, what might be called Aramean culture was largely a composite of elements drawn from the civilizations of their neighbors, most notably the Neo-Hittites, the Assyrians, and the Phoenicians. While we know about the more important Aramean states, 
We know very little about Aramean tribal structures and the mores and ethos which underpinned Aramean society. In the mid-10th century BC, you'd really have to travel south of Hamath before you'd encounter the first strong kingdoms founded by Aramean dynasties, the kingdoms of Aram Zoba and Aram Damascus. We touched a bit on Aram Zoba or Soba last episode, but we haven't really touched on Aram Damascus. As Bryce notes, it was probably in the 10th century BC that Damascus became the capital of one of the most important Aramean states in the Levant. But Damascus's history extends well back before the Aramean occupation. It is first attested as one of the cities and kingdoms which fought against, and were defeated by, the pharaoh Tuthmosis III at the Battle of Megiddo, during Tuthmosis' first Asiatic campaign in 1479. The city is also mentioned in the 14th century BC Amarna letters as being ruled by a king named Biryawaza, of possible Mitanni origin. Though Damascus was under Egyptian control, things weren't quite so cut and dried. Historian Eric Klein notes that the Kassite king Bornaboriash II accused King Biryawaza of attacking a Babylonian caravan taking gifts to Akhenaten. Regardless, apart from its brief capture by the Hittite Empire in the wake of the Battle of Kadesh, Damascus remained in Egyptian possession throughout the remainder of the Bronze Age. Unfortunately, the only information we have on mid-10th century BC Damascus derives from biblical sources. Last episode, I mentioned that one of King David's victories was supposedly won over King Hadad Azer of Soba. At the time, Damascus was effectively ruled from Soba. But after Soba's defeat, a Soban warrior named Rezon captured Damascus, overthrew the Soban governor, and declared the city independent under his rule which is the biblical origin story of the kingdom of Aram Damascus. Just to mention it, contemporary Aramean kingdoms often include Aram as a prefix. In fact, once Aram Damascus became regionally dominant, it was often just called Aram. From later sources, we know that Damascus and Soba shared a devotion to the Canaanite storm god Hadad and they were obviously far from alone. Hadad was also the storm god of Aleppo, and after being carried to Mesopotamia by the ancient Amorites, had been adopted by the Assyrians and Babylonians as Adad. Historian Alberto Green also notes that the Akkadian logogram used for Adad was the same as that used for the Hurrian storm god Teshub. Sometime after entering Syria, the Aramean tribes adopted Hadad as one of their major deities. I noted previously that the king of Aram Zoba was supposedly named Hadad Azer, or Hadad is preeminent. And the first independently attested king of Damascus would be named Ben Hadad, or son of Hadad. 
It's possible that Hadad had a temple in the city prior to the Aramean takeover. But sometime during the following century, the kings of Damascus began construction of a massive new iteration. The ensuing temple of Hadad Rahman would endure, in one form or another, for over 1,600 years. Modified into a Roman temple of Jupiter, then a Christian cathedral, before finally being demolished in the early 8th century AD to make way for the Great Mosque of Damascus. Not to lean too much on the biblical narrative, but there are a few more elements of King David's reign that are probably worth mentioning. One famous to all you Indiana Jones fans is the story of the Ark of the Covenant, the chest holding the tablets with the Ten Commandments. All throughout their decades of wandering, the Israelites carried the Ark along with them, protected by a warrior vanguard. It was also frequently brought to battlefields to aid their conquering armies, a tactic that didn't always go quite to plan. In the wake of one battle, the Ark was supposedly captured by the Philistines, who paraded it through their pentapolis. At Ashdod, it was placed in the Temple of Dagon, which resulted in the collapse of the god's cult statue and a local outbreak of disease. Similar misfortunes followed the Ark's relocations to Ekron and Gath, upon which the Philistines very sensibly handed it back. In the biblical narrative, following his conquest of Jerusalem, David planned to build a temple for the Ark, but was cautioned against it by an Israelite prophet. What David did build was a new royal palace, a project for which he enlisted the support of a newfound regional ally. The Jewish-Roman historian Josephus relates that Hiram, the king of the Tyrians, sent ambassadors to David and made a league of mutual friendship and assistance with him. He also sent him presents, cedar trees, and mechanics, and men skillful in building and architecture that they might build him a royal palace at Jerusalem. By the mid-10th century BC, Tyre had eclipsed Byblos, Beritus, and Sidon as the wealthiest Phoenician port. After their likely destruction of Dor, the Chekair city from the report of Wenamun, the Tyrians had found further territorial expansion curtailed by the Philistines and Israelites. So, under their kings Abi Baal and now Hiram, they'd pivoted to exploit their real strengths. The first was their unchallenged expertise in maritime trade and resource extraction. The second was a reputation for having the finest craftsmen in the Iron Age Near East. In addition to getting paid for these skills, the alliance with David supposedly gave the Tyrians access to trade routes through Israelite territory. In the biblical account, relations between the two kingdoms became even closer under David's son and successor, Solomon. When the new king decided to finally build a Jerusalem temple, Hiram supposedly provided him with a skilled architect, cedar wood, and other precious materials. As Josephus notes, Solomon left no part of the temple, neither internal nor external, but what was covered in gold. 
While no actual evidence of the temple endures, the detailed description provides some value. Because, apart from the pimped-out biblical flourishes, the architectural features, furnishings, and decorative motifs have established Near Eastern counterparts. Archaeologist Israel Finkelstein considered Solomon's temple to be built according to a Phoenician design, and its biblical description generally aligns with Phoenician temple architecture. The three-part structure, with porch, sanctuary, and holy of holies, is also referred to as a temple in Antis, a regional style going all the way back to the early Bronze Age. Solomon's known for a number of things. His temple, his wisdom, his reforms to the Israelite military, his construction projects, his enormous wealth, and his many, many, many wives. All of these are almost entirely dependent on the biblical narrative. With reforms like cavalry, anachronistic, his construction projects not reflected in the archaeology, and his wealth derived from tribute from conquered territories, probably much less than biblically advertised. This was also the case with his purported harem of 700 wives and 300 concubines, several of Edomite, Moabite, Ammonite, Sidonian, and Neo-Hittite extraction. But one figure is of particular interest an unnamed foreign princess referred to as Pharaoh's daughter. On the chance such a marriage actually occurred, the relevant question becomes which Pharaoh's daughter? Which means it's probably time for a little more catch-up. We left off with the dual pharaohship of Smendes and Herahor. When Herahor passed away, he was succeeded as high priest of Amun at Thebes by a figure called Pi-Nedjem. Pi-Nedjem may have been the son of the previous high priest Pi-Ankh, the one who'd been lured off to his death in Nubia. Either way, Pi-Nedjem married a daughter of Ramesses XI and, around a decade into his tenure, felt comfortable enough to proclaim himself co-pharaoh, alongside the pharaoh Smendes, who still ruled from Tanis. When Smendes died around a decade later, he was succeeded by a short-lived pharaoh named Amenemnisu. Upon his death, Pi-Nedjem maneuvered to have one of his sons elevated in Tanis as the pharaoh Susenes I, which meant that Upper and Lower Egypt were now ruled by a father-son duo. When Pi-Nedjem died, another of his sons, named Menkepera, effectively inherited his control of the south. Despite only claiming the title of high priest, not pharaoh, Menkepera went on to co-rule Egypt with his brother, Susenes I. At the dawn of the first millennium BC, both power centers remained in the family, now ruled by royal cousins. Until the latest northern pharaoh, Amenemope, died around 992 at which point there's a full-on reality show record scratch. Because rather than a son or wife or brother or cousin, the figure who succeeded Amenemope as pharaoh of Lower Egypt bore the rather incongruous name of Osorkon the Elder. 
Now, we do know a few things about him. We know that both his father, Shoshank, and his brother, Nimlot, carried the title Great Chief of the Ma, or Meshwesh. And we know that the Meshwesh were a Libyan tribe from west of Cyrenaica. Actually, the Meshwesh had been significant players in the major assaults on northern Egypt under both Merneptah and Ramesses III, coordinating with various groups of sea peoples. Neither assault had really panned out, and after the second, the defeated Meshwesh had been resettled in Middle Egypt. Once there, they were kept in camps or fortresses, where they were forcibly assimilated into Egyptian culture and pressed into military service. At the same time, other Libyans and Meshwesh kept up a constant flow of peaceful settlement into the central Nile Valley, mainly between Memphis and Heracleopolis. According to historian Bill Manley, the immigrants formed large communities that assimilated to the local culture, but still respected the hereditary authority of their great chiefs. With the exception of Ramesses VI, who expelled some groups militarily, the pharaohs generally accommodated the new situation. Manley even notes that the pharaoh Susenes had attended a formal dedication ceremony at Karnak conducted by Osorkon's father. So, there's some background for both an increasing Libyan presence in Egypt and for an escalating Meshwesh influence. But that said, we have no idea how Osorkon the Elder actually made his way to the throne. We can guess that maybe Amenemope had no heirs, and that Osorkon had held some high office in the royal administration. But really, these are only guesses. It's also worth noting that, no matter how out of left field it seems, the historian Manetho didn't view the change as the start of a brand new dynasty. At least not yet. Which means that the elevation of the first non-Egyptian pharaoh since the Canaanite Hyksos was considered some form of continuity. Whatever his path to power, Osorkon's reign was considered both successful and legitimate enough to influence his immediate successors. Because the apparently native Egyptian pharaoh who succeeded him gained his legitimacy by marrying Osorkon's daughter, a lady named Karimala. The new pharaoh's name was Siamun, or son of Amun. And just to bring things back to where we started, this is the pharaoh most closely associated with the biblical story of Solomon. Ground zero of the relationship between the two figures is the Levantine city of Gezer. According to Josephus, the city had indeed belonged to the Philistines. But Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, had made an expedition against it and besieged it and taken it by force. And when he had slain all its inhabitants, he utterly overthrew it, and gave it as a present to his daughter, who had been married to Solomon. If true, the story is extremely significant in two important respects. First, Egypt is well known for never marrying its royal women to foreign rulers. So this would be a significant change in policy, likely tied to the kingdom's loss of prestige. 
And second, such a campaign would represent the first projection of Egyptian power outside their borders in roughly two centuries. While there's zero non-biblical evidence for the marriage, we can at least investigate the possibility of a contemporary Egyptian campaign. First, and most importantly, the archaeology shows that the city of Gezer was actually destroyed several decades later, toward the end of the 10th century BC. So the city's destruction during the reign of Sia Moon doesn't really jibe with the math. But that said, there are a few interesting pieces of related evidence. Historian Kenneth Kitchen highlights a triumphal relief scene from the Temple of Amun at Tanis, depicting the pharaoh Sia Moon smiting his enemies with a mace. The fragmentary relief shows one prisoner grasping a remarkable double-bladed axe, of a type typically associated with Aegean cultures. In Kitchen's argument, Siamun was commemorating his recent victory over the Philistines, descendants of the Aegean-based Sea Peoples, by depicting himself in a formal battle scene relief at the temple in Tanis. The counter-argument, expressed by historian Paul Ash, is that, despite their association with Aegean cultures, in Egyptian reliefs, Philistines are never shown holding axes. And there is also no archaeological evidence of Philistines using axes in warfare. Some related archaeological evidence lies south along the coast, at the Philistine city of Ashdod. According to historians Israel Finkelstein and Lily Singer Ovitz, it seemed that the last phase of the Iron Age I settlement at Ashdod was violently destroyed. This destruction should probably be dated to the early 10th century, possibly parallel to the end of Stratum V at the Philistine city of Ekron. So, in other words, while Gezer was likely destroyed decades later, both Ashdod and Ekron show destruction layers contemporary with Siamun's reign. Which doesn't necessarily mean the pharaoh was to blame, I mean, Iron Age Syria was a pretty tough neighborhood. But at the very least, there are some interesting questions to ponder. When Siamun died in 967, he was succeeded by his royal cousin, the former high priest of Amun at Thebes, who took power as Susenes II. He apparently brought his old title along with him and no new high priest was installed in Thebes during his next few decades in power. Which suggests, at least on the surface, that an Egypt divided by Smendes and Herihor had finally been reunited. It also suggests, again on the surface, that after the innovation of Osorkon the Elder, Egypt had returned to the status quo of a native Egyptian dynasty. But, we all know that appearances can be deceiving. As it happens, Susenes II's senior advisor and commander-in-chief of his military forces was a Meshwesh prince named Shoshank, who also just happened to be the nephew of Usurkan the Elder. On Susenes II's death in 943, he'd take power as Shoshank I. The time frame we've been discussing, 
the mid-10th century BC, is an era when Syria is still developing in relative isolation from the larger Iron Age powers. But that's all about to change. Over the next few decades, the region would confront two major threats. The first was invasion by the pharaoh Shoshank, very likely the biblical Shishak, who'd project his influence at least as far north as the Phoenician city of Byblos. And the second, well, I'm guessing you can guess. Along the Tigris, an Assyrian king named Ashurdan II would repeatedly, forcefully, and brutally campaign to reestablish his kingdom's former frontiers. In doing so, he'd established the firm foundations of what would soon become known as the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Mm-hmm. 